welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. We are in a space race with China. Those words last month were from NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, who warned that China could one day claim the moon as its own. If you doubt that, he told Politico, look at Beijing's actions in the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. This episode is the first in a series we'll be doing on China beyond the ends of the earth. China's Communist Party is obsessed with the future on envisaging how new technologies could change the course of history. In this series, we're going to look at China's techno imaginary to see what dreams the party is dreaming and how they plan to realize them. We're starting with China's space ambitions, and we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Brad Tucker, an astrophysicist right here at Australian National University. We're also joined by Blaine Curcio, the co-host of Dongfang Hour, a podcast about China and space, and the co-founder of Orbital Gateway Counseling. Blaine, let's start with you.、Um, China had 207 space missions in the past five years, and it now has a permanent space station, Tiangong,、um, and it's sending a mission to bring back samples from the moon next year. How fast is China catching up with the other major space powers, the United States and Russia? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, and、uh, that's a really interesting first question. I, I would say that China is is catching up very quickly. I think right now.、Um, I would say it's inarguable that China has surpassed Russia. I think that's a clear in terms of their space program. I don't think you could make an argument against that. And in terms of of the U.S., I mean, when you look at what what China's ambitions are, what they've talked about, especially recently, I mean, they have some really big programs. So, for example, we saw maybe one month ago there was an official from from the Chinese、uh, from Cask China Aerospace Science Technology Corporation, the big state-owned space contractor.、Um, they were laying out some of their sort of Five to ten year space exploration missions, and you're looking at you know missions that are going to Jupiter,、uh, you know, missions that are going that、uh, they have a Mars sample return mission on on the docket. I mean, these are like really cutting edge missions,、uh, some of which NASA does not necessarily have an equivalent,、uh, at least in the sort of near to medium term. So yeah, I think from from that perspective, they're they're catching up quite quickly, and I think that China's space capabilities at this point are. Uh, again, I would say that the second most comprehensive of any country in the world, without any any real argument, I, I think they're catching up pretty quickly. They have a pretty impressive, comprehensive capability in space, albeit with some areas that they're still lagging further behind. Let's say. Yeah, and I was going to say I, I totally agree.、Uh, it, it is not catching up to Russia. They've pat Russia's in the past.、Um, you know, China has been increasing it, and Russia's been on the decline, quite frankly,、um, relative to spending, and, and it really is now a Clear two-horse race、uh, between the U.S. and China in that aspect. Blaine, I was going to ask you、um, that white paper on space. It, there was all this discussion about boundary exploration of the solar system. That sounds incredibly cool, but what does it actually mean? What is China doing that other countries maybe aren't doing?、Uh, well, so again, you you have some of these missions like. Mars sample return. There's an asteroid sample return mission that seems very cool. Although, again, this is、um, in the case of the asteroid sample return mission, which I think is planned for the say 2026, 2028 timeframe. 
Um, that's quite similar to something that the Japanese, uh, but JAXA had done a fairly similar mission a handful of years ago called Hayabusa 2, which was a really damn cool mission. It was like this this satellite basically uh, uh, started orbiting around an asteroid, and then it released this uh, mild explosive charge that then created a small explosion, and you had a little bit of dust that that shot up from the asteroid, and then this uh, the satellite threw out a net and, and captured the dust and, and brought it back to Earth. So digressing, China has a, a similar uh, such mission planned. Um, so yeah, some of these boundary exploration missions, I think it, it's really um, science and technology trying to get things like like uh, asteroid, um, I guess asteroid dust, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's there's a lot of, of this type of, of mission being planned. And and Brad, over to you. I mean, you've got a lot of very close friends at uh, at NASA, and I guess when China's space program started out, it was seen as just basically a ripoff of old Russian technology. But things have really moved on. I mean, are there things that Chinese space scientists uh, are doing and making that are, you know, sort of the envy of NASA scientists? So, yeah, it's it's interesting because I used to be partially at NASA Ames working on the, the Kepler Space Telescope. And, and one of the fundamentals, and, and, and as Blaine was just kind of pointing out, is we often think of the China space program as exploration and kind of political overtones for going into places to do things. But there's an awful lot of science missions planned. You know, as Blaine pointed out, they're doing their own redirection tests of an asteroid as well in the next few years, similar to the the DART mission, the double asteroid redirection test. Just for us laymen, what is an asteroid redirection test? Are they pinging an asteroid in another direction? Is that what it means? It's all about avenging the dinosaurs. That's right. The idea is, can we shift an asteroid in a very small amount uh, in a very safe asteroid, so one that is posing no danger, uh, with the idea that if we gave it a nudge, we would know we could nudge it so that if there was one headed to the Earth, um, you would actually have some sort of defense for it. It is not nuclear bombing it a la Bruce Willis because the flaw of Armageddon is two asteroids hitting the Earth is just as bad as one. It is, can we nudge it just a little bit so that over years it sails safely past the Earth? Now, Johns Hopkins Applied Lab in the U.S. working with NASA did this last September on an asteroid. China had already announced that they were going to follow up with a, uh, a, their own technology on a different asteroid based on the lessons learned there. And I, and I think this is actually one of the keys that we sometimes miss in this. There is, there is scientific cooperation between these areas, right? There is knowledge shared between these areas. And I think that's the exciting thing where we are in an area a little bit more of globalization in space to some degree. The Hayabusa 2 mission, Hayabusa 2 landed in Australia, actually. Uh, and Australia was part of that. And and this is what we're seeing a little bit here now. And so I guess to, to, your, to your initial question, Graham, the, I, I think the, the envy, so to speak, is that they have the money to do it. And that is the difference. The uh, government is not limiting budgets, but it's saying, this is your budget, go out and do it. And that is the the perennial issue we have in space. I have a laundry list of ideas and missions I'd like to build and zero dollars to do them. And that narrative has really changed thanks to China. And, and just a very brief follow on, on Graham's question of, you know, is there, are there things that, that let's say, are, are the envy of NASA, for, for lack of a better term? Uh, I do think there's a couple of interesting examples of areas where China has basically just learned from, from let's say, best practices or, or from, let's say, NASA's experience. So two examples that I think are, are noteworthy, um, the Chinese space station 
basically they they have uh, the airlocking uh, process, the airlock system, let's say when they have the the cargo or the the crewed module going up to the space station, that it, it occurs sort of in a it's integrated in both the the cap the the crew module or the capsule and the space station. There's no sort of separate airlock room, let's say. So they've eliminated this sort of a, a you have the 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 module, you have the space station, and historically you have a, a sort of third an airlock which is kind of attached to the space station. Um, they've kind of removed that to make it more efficient. Let's say it's just taken out one one piece of the of the puzzle and and just simplified it a little bit. The other one um, that I would point to is their, their uh, Shuntian, the space telescope that's going to launch. We don't know exactly when, but maybe in the next year or two. Um, I mean, it's a very sophisticated telescope uh, from a let's say astronomy point of view, I, I suppose. I don't really know that much about astronomy, so I, I, I go beyond my depth. But from a technical perspective, the interesting thing is that it can um, sort of latch on to the Chinese space station and do periodic repairs or upgrades, this type of thing. Um, and that's something that I suppose um, it would be, you know, NASA, I think, would really, I, I think they would find that very useful if they could have a, you know, if they could go up to, let's say, Hubble or, or JWST, uh, you know, uh, and do periodic repairs and upgrades. I think that would be a pretty cool thing to be able to do. So yeah, there's a couple of areas I think where China has has learned from the, let's say, the experience of the other spacefaring nations and, and has maybe moved the needle a little bit in terms of innovation. Exactly, because you know Hubble was is only around so long because the shuttle serviced it four times. And then they stopped the shuttle and that was it. So as you said, China's now taking the next leap. Let's not just service it, but by something that we rely on docking with it, let's just service it all the time in there. That means you can constantly upgrade the cameras and essentially the brains of the telescope, which is why it stays successful and do cutting edge science based on new discoveries that are made. Whereas things like James Webb, that's it, right? There is no coming back from that thing. Once it dies, it dies. And pretty much the same with Hubble at this point now. So I, I think that's exactly an amazing point. It's it's lessons learned and then building upon them, not just trying to duplicate what has already been done. Even, even the telescope itself is designed differently to Hubble. It's going to look at a larger area of sky than Hubble can to not try and duplicate science, but to make it wanted by the com community outside of China. And I think that's the key, is there will be groups who say in Australia, the US, Europe saying, hey, we want time on this as well, because it can do science that we can't do on the other facilities. While we're talking about technology and technical capabilities, I can't resist asking a question about the balloons, which, of course, everybody has been talking about. You know, uh, the US decision to shoot down a surveillance balloon and then a number of other unconnected objects, which I've heard described as kind of the equivalent of a science fair project up in space. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask both of you, but Brad, let's start with you, because you say you do balloons. Uh, how how advanced was this surveillance balloon? What do we actually know about it? We I have a whole program of mounting telescopes to balloons. Um, and I, I think we think of balloons as yeah, you, you picture the party balloon going up. You even may picture the latex weather balloon, but the scientific ballooning, like the first one or potentially two with over uh, Central America, we see, you know, these balloons are a few stories tall you can do actually a little bit more in a different way than some satellites, right? Satellites are constantly going around the Earth in low Earth orbit every 90 to 100 minutes, meaning you either have to build a network of them or you can observe a singular point on the ground continuously without building multiple of them. 
With a balloon, you can control it. The idea that you can't con control a balloon is false. You can use winds with the currents to keep you stable. You can have onboard systems that keep you tracked. We use this for astronomy, so we can point at a single star for hours at a time, which means you could do this relative to the ground. So these are a lot more advanced than what people imagine. You can carry hundreds of kilograms worth of stuff. You can stay up there for months at a time. The, the rough order of thinking is for every kilometer you go higher, you lose a day. So the higher you go, the less time you go. So if you go a little bit lower, you stay longer. For every kilogram of weight, you lose a day. So there's all these trade-offs depending on what you want to do and why. So the sophistication then becomes the instruments you put on board. Just as we're kind of talking about the, the brains of the space telescopes, it's the stuff that you put on the balloon because you don't have to solve the technology of getting the balloon aloft because it's fairly straightforward. You can put on as much interesting equipment as you want. And, and that is where the real ingenuity, science, research, engineering, spying, whatever you want to call it, goes into um, because that's the, that's the thing that matters. So, I mean, Blaine, from what I'm hearing, these balloons are way more sophisticated than I imagined. This idea that it was a weather balloon that just drifted off course, that's what China's been saying. That seems ridiculous, right? I mean, frankly speaking, uh, given that I'm, I cover the space sector and don't really cover balloons in any way, I, I don't really want to comment on, on weather. I mean, it, yeah, I just I, I don't know. I don't know enough about, about weather balloons at all to know whether it is conceivable that it would have just drifted off course. Although based on what Brad just said, that you can control the balloons, it would seem, yes, that uh, not, you know, I, I, I take Brad's word for it, that they, that, you know, that you guys can control balloons. And therefore, it would seem like to say, oh, it just, we, we lost control and drifted off course. That that doesn't seem to pass the, the basic smell test. But um, again, I, I it's outside of my area of coverage. You know, I think you can, right? I mean, anything can go wrong. Satellites go wrong all the time. You know, you can have failures of things. Uh, and, and you can also not design it to be controlled as well. So, you know, we're never going to fully know because um, we don't know, right? Um, but the, the idea that these are new, I guess, is it's not new. And it's not even just a China thing, right? The U.S. has done this. The U.S. used these in the 40s to spy on Russia, believe it or not, um, before the satellite era. So this is not a, a new technology that's been used for scientific and government purposes. It's maybe just one more people are paying attention to because someone happened to see it once. And Blaine, I mean, to get to your area of expertise and, you know, you spend a lot of time there on the ground, you're back in Beijing now and you talk to a lot of the people in the China space industry. And until about 2014, it was really dominated by a couple of massive Chinese state-owned enterprises. But since then, they've opened it up to, to private capital and are really encouraging people to, you know, invest in this sector. I mean, who, who are these people in Chinese space startups and where's the money coming from? And is there a, you know, a Chinese SpaceX on the horizon? Sure. You know, it's been a fascinating, uh, I guess, almost nine years now uh, since you know, the, the uh, aforementioned uh, sort of opening up of the space sector at, at towards the end of 2014. Um, so, yeah, I mean, over that time frame, we've seen, depending on how you want to define commercial space company, we've seen, let's say, 250 or 300 companies founded. Uh, most of these companies are being founded by teams that are coming out of the state-owned enterprises. So you'd have researchers, let's say, that are getting together and saying, well, hey, we can start a company now because commercial space is, is okay. And so, um, hey, why not? Well, let's give it a try. Why not us? Um, you're also getting some companies founded by people that are coming from a more, let's say, tech background. So a couple uh, 
for example, there's a company called Galaxy Space. They're arguably the most advanced low Earth orbit communication satellite manufacturer in China, which is, you know, you could say that uh, similar concept to Starlink, although I don't think they'll have their own constellation. But, um, you know, they were founded by a guy who had previously been, you know, a high level executive in a mobile phone manufacturing company, this type of thing. Um, in terms of the financing and you know, who, who's investing into the sector, um, I would say it's it's broadly speaking, three main groups. So you have sort of central government funds. So you have things like the um, China Internet Investment Fund, CIIF. They invest in, in some of these companies that are developing satellites for, for satellite internet, let's say. Um, so you have these central government funds. You have a lot of provincial and city government support for these commercial space companies. Because basically, I, I suppose you have at a national level, the government says, we want to develop a Chinese commercial space industry. And so then every province, every city says, well, we want to develop our own you know, little piece of the space industry. We have this policy or we have this you know, three-year development plan or five-year development plan uh, for, for space or for some part of the space sector. So again, second group would be these kind of provincial and, and city governments that are providing uh, a lot of support I would say both as, as investors, but also as, as customers, which we can talk about more later on. Um, the third group, which I, I think is also quite significant, is, is you know private capital. And we've seen a lot of, of pretty high profile uh, investors coming into the sector. So the company I mentioned a, a moment ago, Galaxy Space, uh, they're one of, if not their largest investor, is, is Lei Jun, the CEO of, uh, of Xiaomi. Um, and then you also have, uh, what is it? Um, Sequoia Capital China. So Sequoia Capital is big California-based VC, and they have a China affiliate, let's say. I don't think there's, a, well, there, there's not a direct ownership there. It's affiliate Sequoia China uh, who have invested in, in certain commercial space companies. Um, also Matrix Partners, which I think is another US-based VC, but they have a China affiliate has invested in some. So yeah, you have this you know, pretty robust pool of private capital, which again, you have the national government saying, we want to develop a space industry in China. And so you have private capitalists saying, well, yeah, the government wants to do it. So that, you know, that makes it at least a somewhat more conceivable investment thesis, let's say, uh, when we're talking about something that's very long-term, very risky to say, well, there's a lot of high-level government support. Maybe we can justify this. So I would say, you know, diverse sector, a lot of different sources of funding and support, um, a lot of different let's say, vested interest still, which is it creates challenges. But um, yeah, very fast growing, very diverse commercial space sector in China over these last nine years. And, and I mean, part of that fast growth is is what they don't really seem to have any regulations at all governing the space sector. I mean, they're the only major space power that doesn't have a space law or something governing what their companies and they do in space. Is that sort of an intentional omission or are they, are they working on that? I would say they're, they're certainly working on that. I think it's not intentional but I, I do think to dig a little bit more into that from a different perspective it does create challenges for commercial companies partly because i think there's this big difference between the west and china as it relates to companies relationship with the government especially in cutting edge sectors i think in, in the us or, or maybe in australia I, I don't really know but you know it's like ask for uh forgiveness rather than asking for permission right so if there's no law saying this is how you do this thing. Uh, but if there's no law saying you can't do it, then you know maybe companies can try and experiment and hey, maybe they make a mistake and, and they can ask for forgiveness. You know, in, in China, it's very much um, asking for permission rather than forgiveness. So if the law does not specifically say you're allowed to do this, most companies don't try to do that thing. No one's really trying to push the envelope, let's say, from a regulatory perspective. And I think that's where if you look at, let's say, a company like SpaceX or you know an entrepreneur like Elon Musk more generally, um, I think the, the extent to which he 
maybe does not have a lot of respect for certain parts of the law is is notable and and it it's it has probably allowed spacex to develop more quickly i think it well it, yeah so i think when you look at chinese companies from that perspective it has created a little bit more hesitance and it's just it, it's made their development a little bit slower than it might have otherwise been i just real quick i just want to add on that um we often forget the us hasn't signed all the space treaties either Right. And in fact, we've recently seen a few years ago the Artemis Accords, which has governed the U.S.'s activity on the moon, specifically say we're not going to follow the moon treaty and that we don't recognize it. Sorry, Brad, can you tell us what the moon treaty is? So there's a number of space treaties that govern space. They're, the Outer Space Treaty is the big one, and most people or countries are parties to it. And in fact, it's now kind of entered the idea of common law almost that so many people signed on, it's accepted. And, and the China and U.S. have both signed it. Do you have also a few other treaty treaties like the Lawful Returns Act? Essentially, you have to return something in space if you find it either on Earth or in the ground, uh, which again, China and the U.S. is party to. Um, you have the Moon Treaty, which governs your activities on the moon. This is one of the more debated treaties because so few countries have signed it, um, but it's trying to govern your activities of a good player on the moon in terms of peaceful exploration, non-militarization, the use of resources. And with the new quest of the moon, the U.S. has never signed it. And in fact, recently has said, we're going to create our own standards that we think best reflect the moon which we think are good, but specifically, we're not going to follow some of the elements of the Moon Treaty, which are some very key elements. And, and I think it highlights this intersect of where space law is becoming from, because it's going to become more and more important, this interaction between these countries and every country, in particular in our activities in the Moon, because the Moon also is the Moon and other bodies, i.e. Mars, asteroids, and things like that. So it's not just the Moon. So... Brad, I mean, how would you see the Chinese state's motivation for spending so much money on space research? Do you really think that this idea that it wants to mine the moon's surface to claim that land, you know, almost like a Star Wars type fight over resources that the NASA administrator Bill Nelson was talking about, is that really where Beijing is thinking or how would you see it? I think it's where everyone's thinking. Right. Uh, you know, again, in those Artemis Accords, they specifically talk about private companies in the U.S. will not be held to some of the U.S. national laws in space, which is very important, as Blaine was kind of touching on with the activities of SpaceX, again, in particular in the moon, because the moon exploration is all about the use of resources. And when we think of resources, it's not full scale mining industry changing the world, bringing stuff back down here, yet, maybe in decades, right now it's supporting the exploration of space by using things in space. And the, the current race be, between China and the U.S. and kind of the, I'll say the coalitions they are leading, because the U.S. is leading a group and China's leading a group as well, which Russia's party to, uh, is all about finding resources on the moon to use. And some of this is water, some of this is oxygen, Maybe helium-3, but that idea is always overblown because helium-3, the idea you can create this, you have this huge fusion source on the moon, which is why everyone talks about helium-3, may just not be in the quantities people think about, is still just to support, as of now, space exploration for, for both groups. 
and using that then on their ambitions to Mars and other places, as, as Blaine was talking about earlier as well. So I think, yes, that's part of everyone's plan. Is it necessarily this whole, you know, kind of like we think of deep sea drilling or or maybe even Antarctica? It is a little bit of a different case as of now that, again, will probably change in decades to come. But like anything, those who go first somewhat set the rules to some degree. And that's, I think, where some of the trepidation is. And I mean, Blaine, how does that contest look in kind of near space when it when we're looking at the sort of battle to sell satellites and rockets to other countries, if we're looking at that, how is China doing there? Yeah, so I think if we look at, at let's say, well, your, your term near space, um, the, the most competitive and innovative company uh, in terms of commercial launch or in terms of, let's say, satellite, internet, this type of thing is, is clearly SpaceX and, and Starlink right now. The, the launch cadence of, of SpaceX is... As someone who's been in the space sector for a little bit more than a decade, I mean, it, it's it, it's pretty remarkable. And I, I say that begrudgingly in the sense that I don't like giving SpaceX more credit than is due. Um, but it's a really remarkable, I mean, it, they're, they're miles ahead. And again, in terms of, let's say, this next generation, this, this maybe what we could, in quotation, air quotes, say, you know, the, the, the biggest opportunity for the commercial space industry of this global satellite internet constellation idea. So Starlink being the, the big one, but then there's a whole bunch of other ones. Uh, including Rivada Networks, shout out to them. Yesterday, they announced a 2.4 billion US dollar contract to build like 500 satellites for their constellation. This is a big thing. Um, digressing, China definitely is trying to develop capabilities for, let's say, like lar- like large scale launch. Let's say so. So having big rockets and and also having ride share rockets. So basically, typically, like historically, you'd have a rocket goes up into orbit, it has one or a few satellites on it, right? And usually those one or a few satellites are quite big. Each one might be a thousand kilograms or 2000 kilograms, sometimes 5000 kilograms is kind of pushing the limit and a few satellites per rocket. Now you're seeing a lot more rockets that are doing what are called ride share missions, where it might have, you know, 20 or or 50 or, or in some cases, I think just over 100 satellites is the most satellites ever launched on a single rocket. So it's like an Uber for rocket, Uber for satellites. You you could see, yeah. And, and, and indeed, there are actually companies that are then developing a business model of having a separate sort of, um, let's say, deployment thing that would go on the rocket and then your satellite on their deployment thing and their deployment thing would take you the last month to wherever you want to go in some very specific orbit because the rocket's only going to you know a, a, a specified initial orbit and then it's dropping up so yeah i mean yeah it's, it's getting pretty sci-fi kind of it, it's getting cool in in that regard um <laughs> and, and again Ch- china over the last few years they've done a few more of these rideshare launches i think the most satellites sent by a chinese by a single chinese rocket into orbit is like in 22 25 ish satellites up to this point um and this year they they plan I would venture to say at least 10 launches that would have, let's say, at least eight-ish satellites on them. And so getting back to your question, I think China's catching up pretty quickly in terms of, you know, let's say launch ride share and and on the satellite internet side, less so. We can talk about that more if, if you'd like. But but I think in general, they would be the second most competent uh, entity in terms of, you know, launch, launch cadence, for example. And I spoke with a European space startup they sent one of their products into orbit on a Chinese satellite a couple of years ago. And at the time, they were looking at European launch options to send this. And they were told like, yeah, you know, this is 2021, let's say. They were told, yeah, 2024, maybe we could get you on a, on a rocket, you know, we could give it a few years. 
and they called this Chinese commercial company and they were like, yeah, we have, you know, we have satellites going up every three months. Basically, it's just, you know, let us know. We could fit you in in March. We could fit you in in, in June. We could probably <laughs> fit you in, in October if you want. And and it's just, it's, it's impressive. I mean, I, I think it's, yeah. So I would say to your, the, a, a much shorter answer to your, to your question that I've been answering for the last couple of minutes is, you know, China has a pretty capable, significant capabilities in, in some of these new commercial or otherwise kind of more, let's say, democratization of space, if I can use such a term, kind of areas where you have these you know, smaller satellites that can be sent up and, and, you know, you can have all these different rideshare and Uber, Uber for satellites kind of uh, services. So, yeah, it's, it, they're, they're catching up pretty quickly. I mean, Brad, would that be within your remit to, like, send one of your many experiments up on, on uh, space Uber? So, I mean, that, but that's, that's the only way we can get our experiments into space now because of the cost. By having more satellites per rocket, the cost is essentially reduced, you know, and, and SpaceX regularly charging one to fifteen hundred US dollars per kilogram, which a few years ago with the space shuttle was about fifty thousand dollars per kilogram. That is a, a th- that is a difference to a research budget because you know, as the satellite gets smaller as well, it means it is cheaper. And I was blaming saying, you don't want to wait for three years for having your experiment ready to go and not launching. You want it in orbit. And, but that also drives then development of technology by getting faster into space. You're testing or you're doing experiments more so you can develop faster, so you can do more, so, you know, so it is, they go hand in hand. I, I think a lot like, I, I think the industry a lot like airplane travel, right? We, you don't need an A380 or a Boeing 747 to go to the next city. You know, it's only an hour flight often. You want maybe a smaller airplane that flies more regularly because you want those options for when you're regularly not, hey, you're going to have to wait to the next day as it takes. And, and that's where space is finding itself. And, and as we heard, SpaceX has clearly been doing it. China has been doing it. India is also starting to do it a bit as well. India has done a few ride-sharing missions. Um, and then you have the groups coming online who are just building smaller rockets that could still take a fewer, you know, a few satellites at a time, but they're trying to launch more regularly. That That is the key, more regular access to space and this, yeah, this, as a lot of people describe, democratization. I, I know this is totally irrelevant, but I just... I really don't envy you having to expense rocket launches through a university <laughs> admin system. Um, <laughs> that must be so challenging. Is, I mean, is it easier than going out for a drink? I mean, that, that's already torturous uh, enough. Look, you, do, you do need your receipts for your reimbursement. Let's say that. <laughs> I mean, Blaine, if I could ask you about one area where American and Chinese companies are really, really going head to head is something that affects our everyday lives, the, the sort of geospatial mapping. You know, when you open, open Google Maps, you're relying on GPS. But there's another system called Beidou, which is basically a Chinese version of this. Um, and Xi Jinping seems to be really on board with it. Uh, he gave a pep talk to the Politburo yesterday where he talked about um, the Politburo being inspired by the spirit of Beidou in the new era, the only company that he name-checked. I mean, how is this competition playing out? Just one brief point of clarification, I guess. I, I wouldn't necessarily refer to, to Beidou as, as a company. I mean, it's a purely government thing. I mean, it is, it is a Chinese-funded global satellite navigation constellation that, you know, in a, in a similar way that GPS, as far as I know, is, is operated by possibly the U.S. military, but definitely the U.S. government. Uh, I, I think that, that Beidou is similarly a purely state thing. Um, but, but I think in terms of the 
let's say the rivalry there in the geospatial sector, I think it's a very, well, to your point, the Chinese leadership sees this as a very important area. One phrase that you hear fairly often in the Chinese space sector is uh, so basically this um, uh, integration of, of communications and satellite navigation and satellite uh, remote sensing. So basically you have these three main types of satellites, let's say communication satellites, which is you know internet or, or TV broadcast, or basically sending data, let's say. Uh, navigation, so obviously, where are you on the Earth? And we use these for, you know, Google Maps or Uber, or whatever else. And then remote sensing, so basically, satellites that are either taking photos of the Earth or using like synthetic aperture radar to to take kind of images without really taking a photo. It's more using waves. But digressing, you have these three different, you know, generally speaking, three main types of satellites. And the Chinese leadership, the, the powers that be, they, they're trying to integrate this so that at any given time, you would basically have the location of something, you would know what it would look like, and you'd be able to have two-way communication with it through this communication satellites. And so I think from that perspective, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's a powerful system when you think about having all three of those types of satellites integrated, having the same standards, and, and being able to really, I mean, it's a little bit dystopian, but it's a powerful sounding system, I guess. And, and there's certainly... There's applications for that moving forward. Things like autonomous vehicles are going to require very, very, very accurate location data. And there are companies that are launching their own satellite, like navigation satellites that are then using the Beidou satellites as kind of a waypoint and then augmenting your location data to, to give a more accurate location. And some of these companies are, are really damned interesting. So like GV, for example, the big Chinese car manufacturer that also owns uh, Lotus, I think, and, and Proton in Malaysia, they own about 50% of, and they're a pretty big shareholder in, in Daimler. Um, they're trying to develop their own such constellation because they say, well, we, we're going to have self-driving cars one day. And, and we, you know, they, they build lots of cars. They have a very, you know, they're a big company. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think this is, this is an area that, that, it's important, this idea of, of understanding where something is at any given time, what it looks like, and, and being able to communicate with it in, in you know, multi-directions, um, and, and to have very, very accurate data. It's it's dystopian as, as, as heck, but it is pretty interesting and, and important, I think. And and is it being actively sold to the developing world? So if I'm the leader of the Solomon Islands, um, you know, can you offer me a cheaper, better system than GPS? So for example, uh, there's a company here called China Great Wall Industry Corporation. They're a subsidiary of, of CASC, the main space contractor. Um, a few years ago, they set up an office in Phnom Penh in Cambodia where they were specifically trying to sell Beidou-related stuff, to, you know, helping the Cambodian logistics industry becoming more efficient by giving them better location data and you know, doing this kind of... Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there is a... There have been other examples in, in Thailand. There was a Beidou kind of industrial park set up with support from uh, with support from a, a Wuhan government uh, district kind of office type of thing. So yeah, you, you've had yes, I would say that, that China is definitely trying to to export the you know Beidou related technology standards. I think standards are important, and I think that they're they're trying to to get other countries onto their standards. Um, so yes, I think you could definitely say that there's a push to to export this technology um, largely to the developing world. Yeah. Just a couple of days ago, China's Global Times ran an article and using very Global Times language. It said that the US is, when it comes to space, playing the trick of a thief caught crying stop thief. It said the US is demonizing China and hyping its military capabilities in an attempt to justify its own weaponization of space and its own budget increases 
to build a bigger space force. I mean, Brad, surely there's logic in that argument. Yeah, I, I think that's partially driven by the war in Ukraine. Uh, I think we've seen how critical space has been, but also, again, some of these overtones of private sector with Starlink, uh, as you know, we've seen with SpaceX uh, in there showing that, and in fact, I think the Space Force General at the end of last year said um, this war has shown how big the private sector is, the commercial sector is in the space world. Um, you know, some of those remote sensing or, or Earth observation satellites Blaine was mentioning, uh, in the U.S., a lot of those are maintained by a private company with a lot of defense contracts called Maxar, um, who a lot of your images on Google Maps come from, but anyone can task them. In fact, two years ago, I bought a ton of time uh, for kids to go outside and be imaged by a satellite doing designs, right? And someone even like did a marriage proposal. You can do a lot with this commercial sector. So it's not surprising that the U.S. government needs to spend more because it's becoming critical. And and as it's trying to say, well, yeah, it's true. I, everyone's kind of doing this, I guess, is the, 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 the flip side of the coin. The U.S. is doing as much as Australia, as much as Japan. Um, you know, the Space Force, I think we think of Space Force when it was created as this kind of joke, but it wasn't. It was a real decision that was made. In fact, even under the Obama era, it was looked at. And, and you know, you could even find traces in it in the Reagan administration uh, of, of needing it. And it was kind of this call of, of real spending in space. Now, weaponization, I think, is, is the critical term here because when we think back on some of those space treaties we're talking about, the law is both clear and clear in its unclarity in space sometimes, right? In terms of what you can and cannot do, what you're allowed and not allowed to do. And everyone can find a way of being offensive and everyone can find a way of being defensive in an offensive manner. Um, and I'm not just being kind of riddling here. This is kind of this weird place we find ourselves in space. You know, Blade was saying it's kind of becoming very futuristic and almost sci-fi. It's very true in a lot of ways, what you can and cannot do. So the call is it's very real because anything could be dual purpose. We, we heard uh, just two months ago, NASA saying they're going to start and, and hopefully in earnest getting something called a space tug going. The idea that you can latch onto a satellite bring it down into the Earth's atmosphere, usually to remove old satellites to deal with the growing space junk problem. But of course, if you can latch onto an old not working one, you can latch onto a working one of someone else. And that's this weird juxtaposition we find ourselves in space that a lot of things can be used for multiple purposes depending on who's controlling it. And the U.S. is no different than anyone else in that aspect. So, I mean, sort of a, a final question, a slightly dystopian one to borrow Blaine's language. I mean, could the unthinkable happen? Is a conflict in space possible? Or, or are we kind of there already, given the US is shooting down Chinese balloons at, uh, you know, 60,000 feet? I mean, I, I think from, from my side, I would say it's, it's, it's definitely possible. I, I don't, I, I, would, I would be lying if I said that I'm optimistic about the way that US-China relations have developed over the last several years. That, that, would, be a, that would be a bold-faced lie. And so from that perspective, if we look at how things might go in the future, I mean, I'm <clears throat> frankly, I'm not terribly optimistic about that. Um, so, I mean, let's all hope not. And I'm, I'm very optimistic to say that there's a lot of 
there's a lot of companies that are trying to do a lot of good things and that are trying to, to get you know to get people to, to sign on to standards and to sign on to agreements and to say this is the way that we're going to try to keep space sustainable and we're going to try to keep space clean and we're going to try to keep space peaceful and so on. You have a lot of, of entities that are that are working on this. Um, but yeah, I mean na national interests are a powerful thing. And I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of the entities that are working on the 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 point that I just mentioned, um, they're not necessarily coming from the US or China. For example, the, the Europeans, as might be expected, are, are taking the lead on kind of the sustainability element of this. Um, and and you know, fair play to them. But the the cynical argument would be, well, they're they're pretty far behind everyone, you know, they're pretty far behind the US and China in a lot of ways. And and yes, if I wanted to be able to catch up to them, I would be trying to, to slow them down too, is the cynical interpretation. I, I don't think that's what they're doing. But again, if you're China or if you're the US and, and that's the way you want to interpret it, I, I suppose you certainly could. And so, yeah, I think um, you know, there's reason for optimism, but there's also reason for, for, for pessimism, I, I think. I, I echo a lot of that. I think there is a lot of desire to have space still remain this peaceful, peaceful cooperation. Right? NASA supported through some communications and data when Tianwen Chinese's rover landed on Mars. We've seen ways of working together at the height of the, this war in Russia and Ukraine between Russian cosmonauts and American astronauts. So I, I still think there there is this desire that the the people and boots on the ground, so to speak, that being in space, want to keep that. But but as Blaine rightfully said, some of this is still trying to overcome the nationalistic and political overtones, which is hard to deafen at times. But the point on Europe, uh, reflecting from an Australian standpoint, Australia knows its interesting place in space. We're not a space power. We're, you know, we're second tier, but Australia wants to stay second tier. Um, you have a lot of responsibilities as a space power. Um, as a second tier, we're hoping and trying to use our leverage that groups need us for. Um, Australia supports operation of the Beto network through increasing its precision of those satellites. At the same time, we do it for the GPS network. There's a station 500 meters from me that does this up here where I work. And so we're trying to use that infrastructural leverage that we have of being a little bit of a checks and balances. Australia um, was the first country to lead the banning of anti-satellite tests, uh, shooting a satellite down with a missile. Now, other countries have banned it, but that was because they had already done it. The U.S. did it, then they banned it. China did it, then they banned it. India did it, then they banned it. Russia did it, then they banned it, right? It's easy to condemn someone once you've already perfected the technology because you're ahead, kind of as Blaine said. Australia is trying to say, hey, let's take a little bit of a moral ground. We don't need to do that. We don't want to do that. We're going to get out ahead and just say, no, we're never going to do it. And I think it's going to be critical for those other countries and the, and the second and third tier, um, even the ups of, say, of India and the private companies, hopefully in the U.S. and China, to be a little bit of that checks and balances. The U.S. has a very big growing dependence on the private sector and space. Um, NASA struggles with this, but the private sector is dominating that right now, and they are as critical as ever on that. And so hopefully the goodwill in those areas and those groups can be also that sanity check and that reining in of it. Are we destined, though, for a space war? I think it's it, space issues, yes. Space war, not necessarily, but it may just not be in the war we think of. And again, we're kind of seeing that changing face of, of global conflict as well. 
Wow, that's quite the place to end. Um, as you do at the end of every show that you do, Bland, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to to mention? Or um... Satellite internet is an important thing that I would encourage listeners to dig into a little bit more. You have Starlink, you have OneWeb, you have a lot of you know, Amazon Kuiper that, that they're trying to do their own as well. And again, China has their own constellation. I think this is going to be, you know, you have a couple million people around the world now using satellite to get their internet, which I, I think is, is going to increase. And I think, again, China is, is going to be one of the few entities that has their own such constellation. Um, and then just last point, uh, I, I don't get too many chances to be on Australian media. So shout out to my friends at the Australian Space Agency over in Adelaide. They're doing some really cool stuff. Fantastic. Um, Blaine, Brad, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you both. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.